listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. Co-GM, I should say, because we're not just about Dungeons & Dragons here. We're about all the role-playing games you can play and run campaigns of, or chronicles of. We say that, but we've really only talked about, like, D20-based campaigns that we've run, predominantly D&D. Yeah, it's gonna be... Well, you know, it's... I don't know if I've even foreshadowed this, but there is a point where I'm gonna have to talk about something other than D&D, and we're getting ever closer to it. But it's kind of a... Like, you're... you're, it's, It's gonna be kind of a big mix-up moment when that happens it's gonna maybe take you by surprise oh man are we finally gonna cover a rifts campaign no but like ah dangus man how do i even like say this like we are gonna take a detour in the telling of the empox saga in order to touch on a different game now Um, i'm really intrigued Exactly. Like that's I, like that's I what of, I want I've you to be. I've heard of spin-offs, you know, spinning off of a campaign or, or doing something like that. I mean, like you've that, already but... heard of one within Drail because I had the one where the two guys were the detectives. Uh, right, who, exactly. Who were with the MPOC. But what I've never heard on. of is uh, like a, an adjacent sort of tangential campaign that uses a different system. It's That'd a. It's something. a it's a trans a, a a trans system overarching it's it's like it's like transnational but with role playing games fascinating anyways um that's all part of the empox saga which is my half of this uh podcast if you will me and McGill here we both talk about games we've run in the past and we talk about them glean insights make comments critiques all that stuff and then just get into the general process of the craft of the game master and uh so i've got my mpox saga and meanwhile mcgill's had a bunch of games but right now it's greyhawk uh destiny of istis your take on the fate of istis um but i think that i'm up to go first this time yeah, I think so. Yeah, because the episode previous to the last, I took up so much time with my story, with with my MPOC operation, uh, because I was introducing the act, the new act, Stratification. Act 6, I think we've determined, and I keep being uncertain of this. This is like the third episode in a row that I've been like, is it Act 6? But I'm not going to count it up this time. This time I'm just going to trust that I remembered it. But this time we don't have to introduce the whole act, so I should get the operation all into one episode. Also, this operation, Operation White Wanderer, uh, which is based on Dungeons and Dragons Expeditions Season 2, Episode 7, Bounty in the Bog from Adventurers League. By the way, I don't think I said this is Episode 76, and it is the, uh, man, it's the last day of August, 2021. Uh, so th- that How that's that housekeeping flies, out of the way. What's that? Summer is all already over. How time flies. 
Yeah, I, I guess um, technically, you, uh, like, isn't it September 21st when it turns over? I mean, if you want to get technical, but that's uh, it's less than I, a month I away. I said technically. I said technically, Miguel. That's If I want to get technical, I'm going to say technically. We are within a month of the end of summer. I mean, it's certainly, I, I, I get what you mean. It's the end of summer. and, and It is the end um, of summer. I mean, here in Canada, we, we do Labor Day. And for me, that's when summer ends is Labor Day. Because people are going back to school. People go back to work. You know, the, the, yeah, yeah. the technical end date of summer, it's kind of meaningless considering the way society operates when, when yeah, summer actually yeah, exactly. ends, according no. to everybody. I'm with you on that one. Um, I was actually thinking that maybe on episodes that were like the start or end of a month, we would maybe do catch up and just like sort of do a general what we've been up to at the at the start of the podcast. As for uh, me, I've been listening to the Sharp books on audiobook. Just a bunch of old Napoleonic war stories. It's very pulpy. Uh, and it's been adapted into a series of made-for-TV movies starring Sean Bean. Yeah, I was gonna say, do you like those? Do you like those made-for-TV movies? I've seen a few of those. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've enjoyed some of the ones I've seen. Um, some of the performances are are really phenomenal, and they benefit from having like really great actors in their main cast. Like Brian Cox is uh, one of the just regular guys. Um, and yeah, uh. YouTube's always recommending like dramatic moments from that show to me. Just clips, clips where there, there something are cool happens. Where some guy on YouTube ye- yells something cool. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's how I've watched some of them. But like, yeah. There's one. Honestly, before I even got into Sharp, there was a clip that YouTube was constantly recommending me from Sharp that is just titled "Major Lennox Answered with His Life, Sir." And I kept seeing it in the sidebar and thinking it was like from Master and Commander or something, but now I know it's from Sharp. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great scene. I, I, I love it. I love that clip now that I understand the context of it. Um, although I will say, he doesn't say Major Lennox answered with his life, sir. He doesn't call the guy, sir. The guy's a piece of shit. It's Major, An- Major Lennox answered with his life, as you should have done if you had any sense of honor. Anyway. That's some good stuff. What have you been up to, McGill? I've been uh, watching a lot of movies, as usual. I watch movies on the regular. And uh, the most recent movie I watched was actually covered on uh, the latest episode of Red Letter Media's Best of the Worst. I watched this movie called Tartarus, which is... Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's really bad. It is really bad. So, uh, so our buddy. It's Den, the sort of thing I could have seen myself making when I was a uh, when I was a young film student. Yeah, very much that. Uh, I feel like I knew people who made shit just like that. In fact, I definitely did. Um, so our our buddy Den, who composed our theme music uh, under his stage name Vince Nitro, uh, it was his birthday yesterday. And so uh, he had this request that he and I watch Tartarus online together. And so we did. And uh, it is terrible. Like, it's a really bad movie. 
Um, but it's not boring, which I, goes a long way in my mind to, to making a bad movie like, you know, so so bad it's good. Watchable, at yeah. least. Yeah, watchable. But like this was entertainingly bad for sure. Uh, if you like like the movies of Neil Breen, Neil Breen is a really good sort of touchstone uh, for this same style of filmmaking. And uh, the like just it, this guy clearly had a vision, but it was a misguided, misguided vision. It's a really terrible film, uh, but extremely funny in its like cheap badness. And the the sort of central premise of the film is this sort of like mafioso lowlife guy gets abducted by aliens. Let's be honest. He is literally the worst human being in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he gets abducted by aliens. And then the whole movie alternates between him reliving flashbacks of like the heinous sins he's committed and uh, him being like pro He's committed basically all of them. Yeah. And so half the movie is him like reliving flashbacks of his sins. And then the other half uh, are just him being probed and experimented on and tortured by aliens, which are really just like guys in bad rubber Halloween masks. And, uh, and I think it's it, just the filmmaker in a, in a rubber Halloween mask. Yeah, it is. And uh, well, it's just the filmmaker in a rubber Halloween mask, but there's also this other sort of alien entity that is clearly just like a, a plastic trash can that has been spray painted gold and given like tentacles. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the best, the best moments, like he, they, they do the works. He gets like probed up the butt and, uh, and like shot with lasers and stuff. But I think the best one is, you know, he comes out of one of his flashback nightmares and the alien just starts like, punching him in the legs just like <laughs> just punching him in the shins take this you bad guy yep. take that that was uh, that's a bad life you uh, had yeah so uh so that's what i've been up to is i watched tartarus and uh and i can actually say i recommend it with the caveat that i recommend it if you want like a really funny bad movie to watch because i did find it genuinely entertaining but also just so badly made it's terrible the the interior of the ufo is clearly like the director's garage and he's taped up plastic garbage bags on the walls like that's the level yeah, the visibility of the garbage bags is really uh really central to the visuals of the film oh yeah uh so that's the level of confidence that you're dealing with but I don't know if you want if if you got a bunch of friends like me who like bad movies and you you want to throw on one that they probably haven't seen, Tartarus from two thousand five, but it looks like it was maybe shot in the early nineties. I'm just gonna say there's no reason why the interior of any room dark room with a bunch of lights can't be a spaceship. Shout out to my short film that was about a spaceship. Just do a video game for the exterior shots. This episode is brought to you by Firehouse Subs, a sub place, a subway sandwich place uh, that is open near my place. I don't know if there's a chain of them or what, but a uh, big old bunch of meat, and I got a half a sandwich here. So now, look, Tom, I know you're excited later. about your sub, 
but uh, I can't just let you gloss over your short film, The God-Awful Adventures of the Next Prophecy, because, you you know, you, you dropped a hint about it. I need to name drop it so that I now have so an that people to, can to post it on our WordPress because I still have yeah. it. That's that's right. Um, the product of a, a film society challenge from our university uh, where we just had to have. Uh, is it the next prophecy? Uh, we just had to have that in the title. And just run with it. So that's. You know, and and I I pulled a a classic textbook move from the guy who did the Stanley Parable, which is uh, if you can't if you can't think of your own jokes, just steal one from The Simpsons. <laughs> Confession time! I still need to play the Stanley Parable. He he said that at uh, GDC, the Game Developers Conference. In reference to, uh, there's a point in the Stan- so there's a point in the Stanley Parable where it's like there's a yellow line on the floor that you're supposed to be that the narrator's telling you to follow, but then you come to a room where the yellow line is just like all over the room and you couldn't possibly follow it, like it goes across the ceiling and like up the walls and etc. But um, he points out in that conference, like he took a shot from an episode of The Simpsons, which is literally. Uh, Bart and Millhouse at the box factory and they're being made to follow a yellow line around a room. Um, <laughs> but Firehouse subs. You're going to review that sub for us uh, at the end of the show. I mean, technically I already could because I've had half of it um, and it was pretty good, you know? It's uh I I'm not a big fan of Subway. I always feel like I could if I had the the constituent parts, I could make a better sandwich for myself at home than I could get from Subway. Um well, you could certainly make this, one that has more real chicken in it. Or or tuna. You know about that thing? Uh, is there tuna not real either? That's that's the big scandal, the one that the New York Times looked into and everything. I only knew that their chicken was like mostly soy. Oh, there there was um there's been this big scandal about how it's been well covered on my brother, my brother and me, but uh the, like the New York Times did a study and did this report that was like the tuna at Subway sandwiches literally contains no tuna. What? And Subway, Subway basically fought back and now has their own like informational website or had that was like, no, guys, trust us. It's tuna. We did our own study and it's tuna. It's definitely tuna. And like it has a, a true or false. And one of the things is like New York Times did an investigative report and proved that there was no tuna in our tuna. And they said false. And it's like. Well, they did do the investigative report. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I haven't had Subway in years, so I'll just go to Firehouse instead. Yeah, if you you have one near you, I I don't know what the deal is over here. Anyways, uh, we've taken up good 16 minutes with this intro, and I think we're, we're solid for catching up on the month. 
We've also been playing Borderlands 3, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, I mean, we talked about the Borderlands gun generator in the tavern before, so you know how our thing is on Borderlands. We've mentioned it a bunch. It's a video game, role-playing, FPS game, uh, shooter, looter, and uh, it's it's fun. Full of crude humor. Yeah, whatever. I, I do find I, that I guess part I could... three has less crude humor. I yeah, I don't know. I I feel like a lot of the writing I could just take it or leave it. Um, but you know, I I don't want to get into a whole review of Borderlands three because if I really get into it, I'm gonna talk a lot about the design of that game. So instead, I'm gonna talk about Operation White Wanderer as I said, is based on the Adventures League adventure Bounty in the Bog. So, first of all, previous uh, episode or, or operation, I started off, I said that um, they now had access to a new firearm at the Empok Armory, which was the uh, Artemis, I think it was the Artemis Carbine, the M1A1 Carbine rifle uh, is the equivalent from like World War II in reality. What happened uh, at the beginning of this operation, uh, at the beginning of this operation, they got another upgrade added to their armory, which was uh, they got a plus one armor upgrade. All of them now had uh, access to plus one bonus for whatever, like, magical plus one armor version of whatever armor they already had, unless it was already, like, a magical armor. The point was that, like, so one of the, the standard light armor for MPOC agents, for example, is Kevlar, and Kevlar I have represented as just one point of AC above studded leather plus your dexterity. So it's equivalent to having mage armor or plus one studded leather. Um, and now they have access to, if they were just wearing unenchanted uh, Kevlar, they now have plus one Kevlar. They were wearing unenchanted plate. They have plus one plate now. The reason for this is because uh, the MPOC is now benefiting from their alliance with the elves on the Arctopus, which was an alliance that they had only just formed in this campaign, although technically chronologically a year ago because of the absence of the um, agents. But the advantage here is that the Arctopus has moved to sort of, like, be within the vicinity of where the new uh, act is taking place. And because the MPOC has now established, like, long-term relations with the people of the Arctopus, like, they, they are working in cooperation now, uh, the elves have been able to offer their services in the art of magic and their their crystal mending abilities and whatnot and create and enchant uh, up to plus one magic armor for MPOC agents fairly easily. So now anybody who gets standard issue MPOC armor can now get it at a base level of plus one. Um, <clears throat> and I guess like, for those, like, because I, I keep saying this isn't just a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, I should explain. Like, what that, all that means is basically it's like 
it's one point better in terms of armor class. Like you're, I think in 5e, you generally see the bonuses going from plus one to plus three, but it's something about like the way that 5e introduces this bounded AC system where it's like you're never really going to see an AC higher than 30, and even that would be extraordinary. Um, because of that, one, two, three, those are like the only bonuses you need. Back back in 4e, when it was a when like the numbers sort of got exponentially wilder over time, you would go up to like plus six, I think. And but they're just general bonuses that you're adding to like your your d20 or or your resistance to a d20. So uh, now at this point, uh, last time the players rescued the. Um, the Goliaths who had been lured into becoming monks of an order that had actually been sort of hijacked by an evil cult of ice cultists uh, dedicated to the entity Cryonax, the evil elemental evil prince of ice. So The, ge the gelatinous um, ice cube. No? No? Uh, I mean, man, why didn't I think of that? I really should have done that. Man. Ice cubes. I know. I, I I really should have thought of that. I, I should have even had that in my module. My God. To to have this revelation now, McGill, it's earth shattering. So I'm just going to try and get past that. They have come to the Highlands to deal with reports of the cult of Cryonax. They believe that the cult of Crynax may be working under the influence of the uh, final Hague missing from the coven that they have almost uh, dispatched entirely, the last member of which is Selaith the War Witch, a legendary war criminal. And uh, so they are on the hunt for Selaith and also trying to hunt down the cult of Crynax, see what they're up to, and disrupt their evil activities in the Highlands which are happening alongside the festivities of Winterfest, which is a sort of wintertime celebration held by the dwarves, the draconic peoples, and the avian peoples who all live in the Highlands. And the Goliaths, of course. Um, so, the Goliaths had been lured into this uh, monasterial retreat, which was actually had been turned into a drug op by these evil cultists. But... Al's aces, our heroes, managed to rescue them. Following that, uh, there was some downtime, but during that downtime, there was a very severe winter storm that swept through the area. And following that winter storm, once they were called back into action, uh, they were informed of basically reports of banded activity throughout the mountains, preying on caravans and whatnot travelers that were trying to get through the mountains during these like tough like like high snowfall like the aftermath of the storm basically and i don't know if i said this or if it was maybe implied but i think i definitely had the idea that like that heavy snowfall like there were these winter storms that were actually being brought on by the acts of the cult of Cryonax, because of course they are gonna call on their fell evil ice lord to give them, uh, you know, blizzards for their terrible tactics. 
Um, the party actually for this job, so basically they had to go out and try to, like, the idea was to bait these bandits into attacking them and then try and figure out what the bandits were up to, um, af like, by following their trail, basically, or, like, you know, luring the bandits to attack them, but then following the trail of the bandits back to their camp and then, like, figuring up what the figuring out what the cult was up to and uh to this end i gave them the opportunity they were offered the opportunity to travel with a dwarven caravan that was traveling through the mountains um with the idea that like the bandits would try to attack the caravan and then that would give them the opportunity to lure out the bandits but they actually um you know this is something i i talk about with these empok games is like I give them the mission, but it's open to them. Like I may give suggestions or, or setups or contacts in the field that may give them opportunities to take a certain tack with different operations, but it's always up to them. Like generally it's up to them how they approach the mission, what time they want to do the mission. So like they choose whether to do it in daylight hours or nighttime. Um, and this is an example of where that freedom comes into play. Is like I had this offer of uh, a dwarven caravan that they could travel with, and I had all sorts of stuff like interactions that could go on with that caravan and potential casualties from the caravan once the cultists attacked. Um, but they just opted to go it alone. They were like, you know what? Let's not put anyone in danger. We will just like travel ourselves we're pretty good at like you know we're, we're pretty good at detecting things that are trying to escape our notice so we'll probably detect the ambush and besides like we'll make a juicy target we'll just be three people traveling through we're enemies of the of the bad guys let's do it that way so they do that they totally skip all the caravan stuff and they did manage to detect the ambush i think Again, it's something I mentioned before is like at this point, I believe that Chessy as a multi-class wizard has access to fly, fly and also invisibility, things like this. And so is like putting these skills to these magical abil abilities to pretty good use so that, you know, they can scout out the entire area and go undetected and just find this uh, ambush. So they find this ambush consisting of uh, a dwarven scout, a dwarven and a human spy, and then two human bandit uh, mages or magi. And, you know, they get the jump on that. They get the drop on them, take care of them. No problem, basically. Uh, the clues from the bandits and they like manage to find the nearby bandit camp uh, lead them to discover evidence of an excavation that the cult of Crynax is uh is undergoing in Murderfrost Canyon which has been sort of like an area of importance in the previous episode as well uh there's been all this talk of like people going missing in Murderfrost Canyon things like this like weird casualties in murder frost canyon people searching for uh like bandits and whatnot and so here we have more proof that the cult of cryonax is up to something in murder frost canyon which is of course as like jagged and and treacherous uh crevasse 
as its name would imply. But the excavation is being led by a human named Joe, and the evidence they have suggests that this is a mysterious human thief uh, who there's all this theory that like she may be going mad or something. She's like rarely seen among the, the cult. Um, but one interesting note is that Joe has a beehive hairdo. It's just, just something I, I did with her character. So there's this evil cult up to an excavation in the icy murder frost Canyon being led by a, a mysterious woman with a beehive hairdo. And, uh, so that's the car- that's the player's next destination. It's Hedwig and the Angry Inch meets the thing. No? Maybe. We'll see. It's actually funny. I know the weird reference that I'm going to make eventually and we're we're going to have to link to it in our show notes even though I don't like it. But we'll we'll get there. Um Another thing about this bandit camp is they found bug repellent in the bandit camp, which is a weird thing to have in like the deep frosty landscape that they are in. But, you know, they're in they are in kind of a wilderness area and whatever. But they take the bug repellent, which, you know, they probably took it just because it was like a good item to have uh, in case you come up against like. I think I told them, like, the idea was that it would give, it would make, like, bug-type enemies less likely to attack you and also give them disadvantage to attack you if they did choose to attack you. And, like, really, I think that this is an item that, like, should be in the player's handbook as, like, one of the generic items you can get because that's, like, that's a really actually cool item is, like, you go into an ant egg's nest and they have disadvantage to attack you because you put all this bug spray on. That's great. That's a good idea. It's Dungeons and Dragons. Good stuff. Um, you know, obviously up to DM where whether ant eggs would be affected but or like umber hulks or stuff, you know, where you draw the line between just a, a big bug and a monstrosity. But still, like, um, the number of times that you deal with, like, a giant spider in Dungeons and Dragons, like... Bug, bug repellent should be go-to. Go-to, man. It should be in your adventures kit or whatever. Anyways, so they take the bug repellent and they find use for it pretty quickly, even though this is an odd place for it. Um, they find a group of four draconics or, or dragonborn, but like they are part of the greater draconic kingdom in this in these mountains. And... Uh, they don't, I don't know if any of them actually, oh, I think Ara Kendor had a, had like a helm of comprehend languages or something that he was able to use, um, because I don't think any of them actually spoke draconic, uh, but they were able to communicate with this group, um, who were basically in this area and they were seeking allies and they claimed that they were dealing with something that they just called a bad tree. A bad tree, not a good tree. It's a, a bad, bad tree. tree. A bad tree. They, Tom, they were... you are foreshadowing what I'm bringing to the tavern. Oh, man. Well, Al's aces, they're like, okay, well, if you guys need help, um, you know, we're happy to improve relations with the locals as we try to, like, that's the whole reason they're here 
helping out during Winterfest trying to deal with this cult. And so they say, all right, we'll help you deal with this bad tree. And they check out this bad tree. And uh, first of all, in the middle of winter, this weird, twisted, mutated tree, it has a huge, giant wasp's nest in it. It's got seven giant wasps. But the players just got bug repellent. Hey-o! Looks like it just came in handy. So they fight off the giant wasps no problem because they got the bug repellent. And they managed to determine that basically... So I had mentioned that this is based on uh, something from the second season of the Adventurers League, which was like the elemental evil thing. And one thing I've mentioned in the previous episodes is like the elemental evil campaign is basically all about the cults of the four elemental evils, which are evil earth, fire, water, and air. But there's this like odd one out in the elemental evils that is Cryonax. And so rather than making my take on this season about the four ones that it, it is actually central to, um, at least in this act, I took all the elemental stuff and applied it to this sort of like alternative story that was dealing with Cryonax and, and Selaith leading the cult of Cryonax and whatnot. But one thing that I did take from the original, or not the original, but the 5e elemental evil campaign, Princes of the Apocalypse, is this idea of elemental nodes. And so all the elemental evil cults have this obsession with like harnessing these elemental nodes, which are like sort of like gateways to the, the elemental planes. So like you'd have an elemental node of fire and it's like a direct tap from like the material plane to the plane of fire. And so it's like this extreme fire resource, basically like this fire elemental energy source. Um, but throughout the season of the Adventurers League and that campaign, like one of the recurring things is that these elemental nodes cause a sort of through the elemental evil corruption throughout the area. And so this was a situation where they identified that this bad tree, quote unquote, this weird mutated thing, um, was evidence of elemental node corruption from an elemental node of ice based on cryonax basically it's like an unnatural it's like something completely unnatural within this landscape that is just being powered by like it's this weird elemental mutation basically so in the middle of all this winter you got a twisted weird mutant tree that's full of weird big old wasps they took care of them <laughs> but it implies greater trouble because if the cult of cryonax has an elemental node somewhere in the mountains then you definitely got to find it and put a stop to their machinations or at um, least deal there, with a big wasp infestation right yeah well they've they've done it now they've done that part now at least so uh, they continue on their way to where they uh, determine the excavation is based on the maps that they've taken from the bandit camp. And uh, it takes them to a cavern in the mountains that they travel through. It's quite long. Um, and they run into four m mud methods on the way. 
And they also run into two hidden gray oozes that try to ambush them as they're traveling through the tunnel. But finally, they get to the excavation site where they have a battle with Joe herself, the beehive hairdo uh, human, three human monks of Cryonax, a bat cob, the uh, cross between a bobcat and a bat that uh, can be quite ferocious in its uh, adult age, and also um, a human ice guard of Cryonax, which is basically a unique Cryonax unit that I based on similar units that each of the elemental cults has in the elemental evil campaign. Um, but the cool thing about the ice guards of Cryonax was basically I gave them uh, an ice-based like claw weapon where they have like spiked ice gauntlets basically that would do cold damage in addition to piercing damage when they did melee attacks. Um, and also in this group was a bandit mage who began the uh, battle invisible. So they were able to, like, they began the fight, but then suddenly this mage comes out of invisibility and hits them with some sort of spell. But they managed to defeat all these bad guys, only to discover that Joe, her beehive hairdo, she had an intellect devourer in her beehive hairdo. Do you know what an intellect devourer is? I do, but I'm a bit disappointed it wasn't more wasps. No, no, no. That, I, oh, man. That were would be like, cool. Were you, like, but setting no, that up to as a switcheroo where it's like, we're fighting these wasps and this person has a beehive hairdo? No, honestly, I didn't think that they would, like, I, I thought that they would think that the beehive hairdo was just, like, a weird character quirk. Um, and, like... The real foreshadowing was like, oh, there's something like she, they, she keeps like disappearing. They think that she's going mad or something in the notes. And then it turns out that she's being controlled by this like dog sized brain with legs that I also did um, in the show notes. You'll see my little doodles. Even the intellect devourer has that sort of like night side eclipse style uh, physiology to it where it has like sort of uh tendrils coming out it's like a brain with like tendrils out of it and like spiky like almost mechanical sort of insect legs yeah your interpretation um, of it i'm used to intellect devourers having sort of dog-like leg like paws right it's like a brain with paws but uh yours reminds yeah. me much more of like a head crab from half-life yeah, and it's also when you said the thing earlier, this was the real thing that was making me think of the thing is like the the head the head thing. Um So yeah, uh they think that the fight is over, but then suddenly this thing bursts out of her hairdo and they manage to slay that, luckily, because the intellect devourer is no joke if it gets the drop on you. Um And I will say the the thing that inspired this really do you remember the show freaky stories you ever see that on like ytv ytv was a canadian ontario based channel yeah ytv is almost like the canadian nickelodeon um freaky yeah, stories that's sort of like are you afraid of the dark right it's like an anthology horror thing <sighs> like yes but it was so much more gross like it was just always it was always like 
stomach turningly gross that some of the stories were like not in fact a lot of the stories i think were not really scary as much as they were just upsetting in how disgusting they were (laughs) um and like in keeping with this theme the uh like so the the format of the show was that everything would be framed as this blue cockroach puppet in a diner in a shitty diner talking to uh like a slimy maggot puppet that had no eyes and just a big mouth and they would like talk to each other about whatever and their their discussions would lead them to freaky stories and each freaky story would start uh it happened to a friend of a friend of mine and the stories were then animated but they were always just disgusting. Like there was one where like a girl has like, she pretends to like this kid in her class so that he'll do a science project with her. But then it turns out that her science project was like turning maggots into nutrition bars and making him eat them. Um, Like there, there were all these, that's not gross. That's just the way of the future. I mean, yeah, but it's just like, you know, because it, it, it's basically like that story is just a story of like children psychologically abusing each other. <laughs> like it's, it was just upsetting. Um, similarly, there was a story that was like uh, this girl who had a beehive hairdo and she's like the prom queen or whatever. But then like on prom night, when, just as they're putting the crown on her beehive hatches and all these spiders come out. There was like this huge spider egg in her hair that she picked up on like a vacation or something. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't really remember any of the other ones. They're just that like they were gross and I'm glad I don't remember them. Um, so that was freaky stories. And I'm sure we'll find some lurid tales for them to tell you on the show notes. Uh, but there's still more to say because they then discovered this excavation that the cult of Cryonax was, uh, up to. And they discovered that they've excavated this obelisk, which they managed to eventually identify as the stone prison of Patrin the Mad. And the, and Patrin the Mad was a, an old ally of Selaeth the War Witch back when she was leading the second witching war as the war witch. Um, Patrin the Mad was a dragonborn warlock who had sort of sworn himself in service to her and in the end um, went insane eventually, but was trapped in, evidently, this obelisk, the stone prison of Patrin the Mad. Um, And so this stone prison... First of all, uh, if you want to imagine what it looks like, basically imagine like from Star Wars, like Han Solo and the Carbonite. That's like basically what we're dealing with is like a dragonborn who's like frozen in stone into an obelisk. Um, And I'm going to find the Terran rune inscription, which I will say the thing is, 
Right. It's definitely Arakandor who had the Helm of Comprehend languages and was able to understand, like, able to communicate with the Dragonborn earlier. I know this because Arakandor had to translate the Terran rune inscription on the stone prison of Patrin because nobody spoke Terran, which is like the, the earth elemental uh, language. The thing is that the thing, like the obelisk that I was taking from the module for this thing, uh, it has like written on it a thing where it's like, if a character touches the obelisk, there's a curse that causes them to take acid damage as they touch the obelisk. But the thing about comprehend languages, which is the spell that the helmet gave Ara, is that you can understand spoken languages, but in order to understand written language, you have to touch the writing. And so Ara Kandor was forced to like hold his hand to this obelisk as it like burned him with acid damage as he tried to read the following message. Uh, this is the prison of Patrin the Mad One, within whose maw rests the fate of the War Witch. Wild and strong, he awaits the winter of his release to seek penance. And uh, I don't think they discovered it right away, but it was revealed like once the Empok got their hands on the obelisk, is that... Um, like, he was frozen in the obelisk with his mouth open, like, his, his draconic maw open, and so his forked tongue is sort of flung out, but the forked tongue is actually the end of a cursed plus-three longsword that you can pull from his maw. That's what the inscription means by, uh... Cool. Within whose maw rests the fate of the war wish, which is the cursed plus-three longsword that is destined... They don't know this. They'll find that this out eventually. But this plus three longsword is destined to be wielded by Patrin and Patrin alone to bring down Saleth the War Witch, his former ally. Um, but the curse is basically that only Patrin can use it effectively. Anybody else has disadvantage on saving throws and disadvantage on attack rolls while they're wielding it. it it's a plus three sword, but it sucks to have if you're not the guy who's supposed to be killing the war witch with it. But this is all set up for stuff down the road and like is in keeping with the previous act from the previous campaign um, that took place in the Highlands with the Screech Owls and Wold, where they had to get the information from Nervosa the Field Hag of how to like defeat Wold when he appeared to be unkillable. Um, and that was, uh, based on an album by Wold. And this is, this act is based on an album by Wold. So it all comes together. It all comes together. Is that a reference to something? I no. was just saying it. Okay. It's a reference to what you just said. Um, by the way, I found the full story of Rock and Mooney. Rock and Mooney, the gladiator and his trainer who had been trapped in magic items 
one in a in a ring that was owned by Valfarine Draglin guy, and one in a headband that was owned by Aura Stormblast Kendor. And they were finally reunited, but I found finally in my notes the full story of Rock and Mooney. So uh Rock was mad at Mooney. When they were reunited, Rock was initially mad at Mooney because he blamed Mooney for the fact that he was they were cursed and he got stuck in a ring. But then Re- Mooney revealed that actually what had happened all those years ago was that they had been lured to the Deathlands for a big tournament by the Nightside Eclipse. But the Nightside Eclipse was actually trying to convert Rock over to their side. And so Mooney realized what was happening and was like, it's not worth it, Rock. We got to get out of here. But Rock, you know, he couldn't be dissuaded. And then when Mooney tried to back out on the deal, the Nightside Eclipse cursed them and got them trapped in these artifacts. And that's why they'd been stuck in the Nightside Eclipse's possession for all this time. It took all this time for them to get back to Empok agents that eventually reunited them and freed them from the curse. And so all because of a deal gone wrong. So, that's my side of things. What do you got, McGill? Or have you got any questions or critiques or anything for me? No, that's all. Well, critiques, Tom. Uh, missed opportunity to not have Cryonax, the the ice the ice demon god, uh, have uh, ice cubes. Uh, missed opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I I I have to admit, I I really like. It would have been gelatinous cubes that like eat you and then freeze. Like, like icy gel that do cubes. Cool damage. Yeah. And uh not not a critique, but I mean come on, you got a beehive hairdo and you have wasps. You combine those two, man. Yeah, I honestly I didn't really I think it's just like they were just separate incidents in the in the operation and I didn't really put them together that way. <laughs> but I mean it's like in the freaky stories thing, she had spiders in her hair, right? So, you know. The point is, the hair is big, but it's actually full of bug. Makes me think of, uh, you know, we mentioned The Simpsons earlier, but uh, do you know the story about Marge's hairdo on The Simpsons? Not, not off the top of my head. So, originally... Uh, Matt Greening had a bunch of plans for plot lines that would pay off later on in The Simpsons. In the early seasons, he was laying the groundwork for these plot lines that eventually got ditched. Uh, One of them was going to be that Homer was actually Krusty the Clown. And that's why the two of them look so similar, which they then used uh, as a plot point in an episode later on. But that was going to be a big reveal. Uh... But Which, Marge, in, in honesty, the big shoes to fill uh, payoff is, like, so great. I, I give them that. Yeah. Um, but with Marge's hair, it was originally going to be revealed that she had rabbit ears in her hair. Oh, like, uh, like life is hell. Like life is hell. And um, 
the only evidence of this that remains is actually the Simpsons arcade game, which is a great arcade game. But when Marge gets uh, electrocuted and you see her skeleton, you can see through her hair. She has rabbit ears in her hair. Madness, man. Totally wild. So there's your Simpsons trivia. I love that arcade game, by the way. Um, Could have been an, an intellect devourer. Just saying. Could have been, or, or giant wasps. So what I have brought this time, this adventure. So uh, last time where we left off, the heroes had ventured into a crypt in Winter Shivan to retrieve uh, an artifact that was holding the soul of a dead cleric of Istis, and the intent was they were going to free his soul from the artifact. And in exploring the crypt, they also made a new friend uh, in the form of a really world-weary, kind of grumpy, sarcastic, millennial, flaming skeleton named Ken. And uh, at the end of the last adventure... Uh, they agreed to just make Ken their in-house blacksmith at the parsonage that they call their headquarters. And that way he could, you know, live out his unlife without being bothered uh, by people who immediately assume that he is an enemy because he is, of course, a terrifying flaming skeleton. And uh, what they did is they they actually they shipped him back. Uh, they like shipped him back by freight. They, they got a big metal box and they put Ken in it and sent him back to Greyhawk, but they had some more business to attend to in the region. Um, and I will say, so this, this session opened with them sort of finishing up the business at the end of the last session. You know, they, they send Ken back to the parsonage, they arrange transport for him to go. And, uh, also, they meet up with Arlena, the other cleric of Istis, who uh, who requested that they uh, that they look into the the crypt and the 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 artifact holding the cleric Warren's soul, and uh, they they so they meet up with her. She freezes soul, and they also go through Warren's things, and they find out that. Uh, they find uh, a message uh, among his things. It's a summary of his investigation into the rumors that the factions of the Scarlet Brotherhood in this region have been wiped out by the Red Plague and their power significantly broken. He discovered that while several small bands of rogue cultists still exist, a few major factions have died to the plague, willingly infecting themselves with it in praise of Yuz. And his investigation also uncovered research by Wintershiven's former physicians killed a century ago when the church militant conquered the region. Within this research lies the cure to the plague. And so now the heroes are in possession of it. And the message is addressed to someone named Lady Valinor in the city of Lukish. Lukish, incidentally, is the capital of Ernst, which is... Where the where Prince Jasper and his father uh, have their their home, so they will end up going back to Lukish in the near future. Um, they finish up their business in Winter Shivan. Uh, 
ultimately they decided not to investigate like these broken factions of cultists in the region and instead uh, head towards their next location. But as they exit the cover of the forest and round the edge of a mountain, they can see this huge swath of the countryside engulfed in flame up ahead. And the fire is strongest by the river's edge, burning down this town-sized settlement. And the settlement is a village called Stoink, which is a pretty funny place name. But this is another place name just right out Stoink. of Greyhawk. Stoink! Ah, oh, Stoink Scoob! Um, and uh, so here's here's what I'm gonna here's how I'm gonna describe this because uh, I don't have my notes for the play-by-play of what the players did. And the reason for that is this is almost like a like an open world adventure in that I presented them with this setup and then I just let them sort of explore and encounter things uh, just around the settlement of Stoink. And I should note that this session took place right around like in in IRL uh, Halloween. It was, we, we played this, this session in October and whenever I DM a session in October, I like to add a dash of horror. I like to do like a Halloween episode. And so for this one, uh, here is the, the setup for what they they uh, unknowingly are walking into. So Stoink is a bandit village, uh, It's like an encampment where bandits can stop overlooking for protection while they sleep. It's a pretty remote place. And it was recently raided and raised by Relt Seavord on his way south, still furious and in search of vengeance against whomever sent an assassin to slay him. He assumed that the player's attempt to assassination was part of a grander plot and not just a spur of the moment thing. So unbeknownst to the players, he's been hunting for them ever since the start of the campaign, having now wiped out several barbarian tribes with little more to go on than the description of an elf in a silver cloak. And so they arrive at Stoink and they find the settlement is just a bloodbath, littered with bodies, dozens of corpses strewn around, hacked to pieces, limbs and heads lopped off. One unfortunate guy is like pinned to a tree by a spear and um, they and so they like walk into this encampment and they're sort of struck by the carnage. They don't know what to make of it. There are a few buildings still standing and what they don't know is that they have walked into a cursed location uh, when Relt Seavord and his barbarian fleet raided the encampment one of his upper echelon of warriors, uh, this like big burling guy, a burly guy, was a big you know barbarian pirate. He was killed by a local bandit assassin, and he was wielding a cursed weapon attuned to him that grows stronger the more blood anoints it. And should the bearer of this blade die, the surrounding area is cursed so that anyone who enters it may not leave until he is put to rest. The blade returns its bearer from the dead as an unstoppable zombie every night, and every night the zombie will return from the dead to hunt the people trapped within the boundaries of the cursed, allowing the blade to drink 
all the blood it desires. Players who walk beyond the boundaries of the curse are stricken briefly with magical blindness, and when their sight returns, they find themselves at the spot where the barbarian died. And he returns to you, you stalk say that and he's kill. A, he's a zombie. Oh. You say yeah. that he's a zombie. Is it a revenant or just like a special zombie? This is a un- this, this is a unique zombie. Sounds like a revenant. Kind of like a revenant, but but here's the big reveal. Okay, so he returns to stalk and kill one character each night, starting with the local NPCs, then moving on to the players. And the only way to stop him is to cast Remove Curse on him. And the name of that zombie, Tom. Can you guess? Uh, He's got like this big blade. He's this big unstoppable zombie. And he's he's like... Man, I I just had a really good guess of Stoink Meaner. Stoink Meaner. No, no. based off Stink Meaner. No, no, no. You, like, here's the thing. You know this character from pop culture. I'm doing a horror-themed Halloween oh, adventure. Oh, is it? Is it Jason? It's Jason. <laughs> so <laughs> the players, I basically throw them into an arena that they can't escape with Jason. So the Relt Seavord has destroyed the settlement of Crystal Lake. Basically, yes. <laughs> That's right. Um, and so the way I ran this, um, I, I do have a, like a bit of lore that they can learn. Uh, like, for example, Stoink was originally captured by Yuz during the Greyhawk Wars. So, like, there is a connection to Yuz. Uh, however, of course, the, the real villain here is still Relt Seaboard, who was behind the raid. Um, and exploring the few buildings in the settlement, there's an inn, there's a smithy, uh, there, there's the, uh, the ruler of Stoink, is still around, though he is the first one to get killed. He becomes beheaded. Uh, Basically, they just find, like, a handful of NPCs cowering around the town and interrogate them. And I had time sort of pass at an accelerated rate. So, like, before they knew it, it was nighttime. And then Jason shows up, and he starts stalking them. And I played it out just like just like a Friday the 13th movie or uh, like the Friday the 13th video game as well, where I gave him some ability to sort of move around, like, you know, misty step a little bit. And he regenerates a lot of HP, so he's very difficult to kill. Like the first thing that happened was Hulika engaged him in combat as soon as Jason appeared and killed like the innkeeper. And so, you know, they all go like, oh, my God, this giant zombie is coming after us. And he's got this crazy blade. Hulka engages in combat and like does some damage, but then watches in horror as the wounds seal themselves back up. And so a lot of this was like scrambling, you know, running around, trying to hide from him, wait until daybreak, try to escape the area only to find that they can't and they just don't know what to do. Um, And let me read a little blurb about Jason's. Uh, blade, the thirst blade. So the idea is this blade thirsts for I, blood. I just want to say they're once again sorely lacking a spellcaster who could have easily cast like something to petrify this guy or something. Yeah, exactly. But exactly the way that you kill Jason in a in a movie or or you know a Chucky or a 
what have you. You just freeze them in ice, melt them in fire, uh, Terminator in a lava. Yep, uh, yep. You know. But thankfully, they do have uh, a paladin with them who can cast Remove Curse, at least. So the the secret to uh, to undoing him is within their grasp. The Thirst Blade, uh, it is this cursed weapon that starts as a short sword that looks like a machete, of course. But when it tastes blood, it begins to deal more damage. And I had it sort of subtly become a larger sword. So it like evolves from a machete to a 1d6 short sword to a 1d8 short sword. And then eventually it will become a long sword. Like its final form is a long sword that does 1d12. Uh, and it gains a higher crit range with every kill. And so he's like this. You know what this makes me think of, McGill? What's that? Do you know in the, the one scary movie movie where the there's the sheriff who every scene she's in, her hat gets bigger? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess you could say it's something like that. If that hat could also deal a lot of damage. Yeah, the the damage dice go up each time, for sure. Every time the hat gets bigger. But uh but really like this whole adventure was just like they, you know, they find uh I've got all the NPCs here, so they find Selnok Espil, the village drunk uh He's a failed fisherman. Uh, he doesn't remember much about anything to do with the village. And uh, he sleeps under the dock. He gets drunk before noon and passes out under the dock. So, like, they find that guy. And, like, he remembers, oh, yeah, you know, uh, oh, yeah, there were all these, like, barbarians here recently. But I don't know, man. I slept through most of it. They don't get a lot of information from him. There is Tubob Muddle, who is a blacksmith. He's a human, just a warm, gentle man, and uh, he has managed to survive this long just by hiding every night in his smithy. Um, the party, he could provide goods to the adventuring party, but uh, they're all substandard quality and break after 10 successful hits, which I remember Hulka in particular really hated because she would like bought a bunch of weapons from him and then they all just broke. Um and uh, Boss Renfist the Mottled, uh, the fearless, grossly overweight ruler of Stoink. He is later found beheaded within one of the few stone buildings inside the encampment's walled area. His personal guard has been butchered, and his body lies on its back uh, next to his personal guards. And uh, so this really was like the players going building to building. Uh, they encounter... The handful of NPCs are there, but mostly just discover carnage. And then whenever I felt like breaking up, you know, like breaking up the, the game a bit or increasing some tension, boom, you know, like they go in a building and then when they go outside, suddenly it's nighttime and they don't know how it became nighttime so quickly. And then Jason shows up and he does his typical like I, I, I even have him just do walk speed the whole time, like just striding around after them unstoppable in that great Jason Voorhees way. And they finally like after, after basically every, all the NPCs are dead and they've encountered Jason several times, they put it together that 
the area is cursed. They didn't realize that like Jason is the source of the curse, but they know they can't leave the area. So it must be the settlement of Stoink that is cursed. And did you ever did you ever do the thing from like Resident Evil 2 with Mr. X where like they can just hear his slow clomping footsteps? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like any time they were in a building and Jason turns up, I would be like, you can hear like shuffling footsteps and heavy breathing outside. And, you know, the door creaks open and they all hide. And then I go, okay, so, you know, you're all hiding, but you can't really see, you just see a dark silhouetted figure hulking and huge, but it's really clear that in his hand, he holds a machete and, ha you know, have him lead with the machete blade everywhere he goes. Just like fun tension building. And I don't often sort of go in, for, I know a lot of DMs like this, but I don't often go in for uh, sort of those DM versus player games. Never really got why people do that, like making it a competition between the DM and the players. But this was one of the few times where I actively did it, where it's like, okay, like you got this big bad NPC and you can fight him as much as you like, but there's there's one weakness that you can uncover by interrogating all the NPCs in the area. And, uh, and they eventually got to it. And they sort of like bumbled into it. The one thing that I remember they didn't hit upon is... They didn't realize that they had to cast Remove Curse at the site of Jason's death, which was the beach. However, I did have it so that by default, anytime they tried to leave the settlement, they wound up back on the beach. So they did cast Remove Curse on the beach, but they didn't realize that that was the significance of that spot. So they cast Remove Curse, and Jason falls, and... Uh, I believe it was actually Maeve who who took the thirst blade, this cursed blade. She didn't attune herself to it, but she took it with her. And so they then decided to proceed to Lucas. Belongs in the vaults of Istis. This could have turned out to be a secret one of the magic items. Yeah, it could be. But they're heading back towards Greyhawk anyway. Uh, and they based on what they discovered in Warren's notes, uh, you know, this message addressed to Lady Valinor and Lukish, they decide, okay, we're going to head to Lukish next. And I, I, they proceed, and I allow them to sort of do a little bit of fast travel as they overland travel there. And when they arrive, they once again find that the city is on fire. And it is in the, as they arrive, they realize it is in the process of being raided by Relt Seaboard's Barbarian fleet. They've caught up with the Barbarian fleet. And, uh... Oh, good. It's their chance to clear everything up. Let them know that there was nobody sending assassin after them. It was just a <laughs> uh, dumb plan. I'm sure he'll understand. And so this session ended with them, like, you know, cresting a hill and then across a bay they can see the barbarian fleet in the waters and raiding parties hitting the shore and the city is starting to go up in flames. And that's where it I closed. Keep, I, keep, I keep waiting for the confrontation with Relt Seavord where he just like, if there's a huge tense moment and they just burst out laughing. I was like, oh, you're all right. <laughs> you guys are okay. I didn't like your spirit. Well, uh, I will say confrontation does not go like that. But you're going to get the confrontation <laughs> on the next session. Wow. All right. Well, uh, it will be their chance to clear everything up. That it will.
Tavern time! It's tavern time! Heading on down to the tavern. Order a sandwich at the tavern. I've already finished my sandwich. Uh, it was good. It was uh, better than Subway. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Subway. Did it contain any tuna? Nope. Neither contained... does a Subway tuna sandwich. Oh. Apparently. I haven't done the research, but uh, no, I, I had uh, ham and what did I just eat? <laughs> you don't even um, remember what you just ate. All, all the meat. Uh, turkey. Ham, turkey, Monterey Jack. All that good stuff. What do you bring to the tavern, McGill? Trees, Tom. You talked about weird trees. I'm going to talk about weird oh, trees. Oh, yeah. Bad tree. Bad tree. So I'm going to talk about a few trees. There's some there's some old black metal song that I keep thinking of that, like, it was by a band called Mensura. And, like, I think they were... Or was it even Mensura? No, I think I'm mistaken. I think it was a band called Nornir. And I think they were, like, a small-time band. I don't know if they ever put in an album, but I just remember they had a song about, like, a guy getting in a fight with a tree, like, sort of Evil Dead style. Huh. Uh, like like not getting violated by a tree, Evil Dead style, but getting into a fight with a tree. It's kind of tell like a f- folk tale. I just remember the one thing is like in one of the verses, it's like something, something to grab an apple, not knowing with a tree he would have to grapple. And I just keep thinking <laughs> of that with this bad tree. I'm like, ah, didn't know you'd have to grapple for your apple. Oh, Snapple. Um... These trees that I'm going to tell you about are all from the Encyclopedia Magica, which I think is interesting. I'm, I'm struck sometimes by the odd things that are contained in the Encyclopedia Magica because it's predominantly magic items, but every now and again you get something like a tree. These are trees. Yeah, you get a whole section on trees. So uh, the Tree of Malice. Incidentally, all these trees are, are from the same source book. The ones that I'm going to read. They're all from something called Islands of Terror, which I'm not familiar with. Um, but apparently the Islands of Terror contain a lot of magic trees. The Tree of Malice. Sounds like there's a campaign that needs to be run that's uh, about being the Johnny Appleseed of the Island of Terror. Going I, around. Oh man, I kind of love that. The idea of like the, the arborist of the Island of Terror. <laughs> You gotta go and make sure that you find fertile ground in all the other realms for these weird trees. So, the Tree of Malice. This is a mulberry tree. Anyone who eats the fruit of this tree becomes filled with evil thoughts. Those who eat the fruit must successfully save versus the spell. Remember, this is second edition, so save versus spell. Or become chaotic evil for four days. A save versus spell should be made immediately... And then again, for each truly evil act the character commits while under the influence of the new alignment, a character who fails a saving throw becomes chaotic evil permanently. The fruit is considered delightful by chaotic evils, but does not otherwise affect them. Damn, right? You eat from the tree of malice and risk becoming permanently evil. A lot of of goblin fruit poachers turning into complete evil tyrants. Yeah. 
So that's the tree of malice. How about the tree of the ravenous? This appears to be a cherry tree. There are a dozen warriors who fight eternally under this tree. For anyone who eats the fruit of this tree becomes so enamored with its taste, they want nothing but to eat it, and they will fight to the death with anyone who tries to stop them. Those who attempt to take and eat a cherry are not prevented. However, anyone who tastes the fruit must successfully save versus poison or join the battle. The tree resurrects anyone slain in this battle, so the war is endless. Over the course of the years, the warrior's weapons and armor have become broken and useless, so now this battle has degenerated from honorable combat into pure savagery of naked barbarians punching, wrestling, and gouging each other like animals. Cherry blossoms continually fall upon their fighting forms. The sight is disgusting enough to require a horror check when it is first seen. Uh-huh. Uh, there's an episode of Deep Space Nine like that, where there's these aliens stuck on a planet where they're in a battle that's never going to end. I think I've seen that one, actually. Um, yeah, it has Jonathan Banks as the as the leader of the one side of the aliens. He's basically right. just Mike from Breaking Bad, but he's an alien. He's like a but isn't he always? I can't die. He just talks like that I all the time. Can't die, Walter. I can't die, Walter. <laughs> if you want to watch a really funny Jonathan Banks thing, uh, very early in his acting career, uh, he starred in like an educational classroom film about menstruation. <laughs> so if you ever want to see, oh uh, god. Mike from Breaking Bad talking about girls' periods. Then you can watch that. It's on YouTube. And it will be on our WordPress now. My God. Um, The Tree of Unending Lamentation. Something that I think is interesting about these trees is that they're all like, they just look like normal existing trees. The Tree of Malice is a mulberry tree. The Tree of the Ravenous is a cherry tree. The Tree of Unending Lamentation is a willow tree. There are several dozen people here weeping pitifully. They are so overwhelmed with grief they cannot move. They stay alive I mean, it's without a aging. Willow. Yeah. They stay alive without aging by eating the leaves of the tree. Those who come within 90 feet of it must successfully save versus paralyzation or fall prey to the lamentation and join in the weeping. If the tree is destroyed or the people are pulled away, they return to normal. It's kind of lackluster compared to the other ones. It's just like The first one is straight up like the the anchor point to your campaign. Like Yeah. And the then this one is just like, guy. it's like sort of like a stopover, you know, on an odyssey. And then the final tree from the Island of Terror is the Tree of Venom. Hey, do you want to guess what kind of tree this one is? Like, you know, we've had a mulberry, a cherry. An a apple willow. tree? It's not, but uh, you're, you're kind of close. You're on the right track. Uh, what do you compare apples to? Is it an orange tree? It is an orange tree. So this grove... And that was my second guess, so... Hey, this grove is filled with the scent of oranges so sweet it's overbearing. However, the oranges of the Tree of Venom are highly poisonous. Anyone who eats of the fruit must successfully save versus poison with a minus six penalty or die immediately. And even those who successfully save permanently lose 1d6 hit points. The many skeletons under the tree are the corpses of those who have eaten the fruit over the centuries. Man, I gotta read Islands of Terror. Man, for some reason I'm still hooked on this idea of, like, just the first one, like, the idea of, like, having a whole journey into, like, discovering the origin of the bad guy 
where then it's like, well, he's from these islands of terror and they have this tree that makes you evil. And it's like, well, but is he evil because he ate from the tree? Like, was he a good guy originally? And they have to like look into it. And then it's like, maybe he did eat from the tree and he got the temporary evil, but he didn't get the permanent evil. And it's like, man, may, like maybe this guy is like up to be the king or something, but he's under suspicion and they find out that he's got a checkered history because of a tree where he came from. It's a good idea. And you're right. Like the tree of malice really can be the, the linchpin of a campaign. Um, I should say, I just looked up uh, the Islands of Terror source book, and it should come as no surprise that it is an accessory for Ravenloft. So there we go. Classic. Well, uh, we don't have too much more time here, so I've just got a small one for us. I decided, uh, you know, you're hitting the old well of the Encyclopedia uh, Magica. I am hitting the old well of my list of magic words. McGill, we're at level four. I don't assume you know, you remember any of the of the big ones, so I'm just going to... No, I don't. Let me, let me pull up a list of level four spells. Okay, and and I'm gonna give you some ones from the past that may you know have uh, have a bearing on, like might inform you a bit. So, uh, flame blade is shoof, fireball is boosh. Uh, looking for something else. Uh, Scorching Ray is Sorsh. So those fire spells, they all have the sh syllable. Shush, boosh. Boosh. Sorsh. Yeah. So, there's a spell where the words can alternately, depending how you're casting it, can be Zafush or Fazush. Fire Shield. Hell yeah, it can be a cold shield or a heat shield. There we go. Uh, what about... Where did I put this dang thing? I'm not finding my own... Oh! Vorvush! Vorvush? Mm-hmm. Vorvush is... Wall of Fire. That's right. And Wind Wall is Borvoni. So you see the Vor and the Borv. Yeah. The, there, the there is logic there. here. It, it, yeah, it starts to build up a little more as you get into the later spells because then you've got the syllables like with more syllables on top. Uh, one that I know just off the top of my head is Invisibility is Snav. So if I say Snavayar... What is that? Is that greater invisibility? It certainly is. I'm three for um, three. This is the best I've ever some, done at this game. Yeah, he, here's some that um, are just sort of like... I don't know if I have a lot of good clues to them, but uh, you might be able to get them just based on the sort of sound of them. So, Morga... Oh, uh, is it Faithful Hound? No. 
Yeah, I was thinking of Mordenkind's Faithful Watchdog. Um, oh. Morga. Morga. Is it... Dominate Beast? No. Hmm. Morga. Polymorph? No. Okay. What so is Morga it? is Death Ward. Death Ward. Oh, mo- like Mort. Like Mort, like Death. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Treshiar. Secret Chest. No. Oh, that sounds like Although treasure. I like that reasoning. I like that reasoning. Yeah. Treshiar. Oh, one thing actually, uh, I only have things that are from the main player's handbook, so I don't even see secret chest here, so I don't know if it's an original... Oh no, Layman's secret chest. I see it here. Never mind. Sorry. My bad. Treshiar is... Fabricate? No. Is it... Tresh. Trash. Trash. Is it blight? No, but you're very close now. Hmm. Because I think you're getting the right idea. Is I'll take one more guess. Um, let me see here. Gosh, there are. There are not a lot of necromancy spells on fourth level, are there? Um, it wasn't necessarily the necromancy that it was about. The trash. Hmm. Is it hallucinatory terrain? No. Treshyar is grasping vine. Like thresh. See what okay. I was doing there? Yeah, so I I actually it's like I went in the opposite direction. But uh Yeah, when it, when you said blight, I was like, oh, he's thinking vegetation. Okay. I was. The thing is I was. Then, but uh That's why I went for like a terrain instead, but Right, right, right. Man. Uh I got a classic here that I use so often that I don't uh, I don't even need to see the list to say it, but I don't think there's any like real, uh, like that. I don't think there's any clue to this. I think it's just a cool word that it, I use for a very, one of my, I've been, I've said on the show actually that this is like my favorite 5e spell and the word I'll is see if I remember Arbanak. 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 Arb Arbanak. Arbanak. And it's your favorite five E spell. Arbanak. Yeah. What like pot I have I recently heard myself while listening to like I was listening to the podcast and I heard myself say that this was like for its spell level level, one of the best value spells you could possibly get in five E. Man, I didn't realize I was gonna have to do homework. Yeah. Uh, 
Is it banishment? Yes, it is. There it is. Banishment, Arbanak. That's a great thing to say when you're gonna banish somebody. Um, I got some here that are just like, I think I was just thinking of like words that I've I've heard Sims say in The Sims, <laughs> like Marshuno. Marshuno. What's Marshuno? Marshuno. Marshuno. Um, Marshuno is, uh, is that one polymorph? Nope. Marshuno, is it conjure minor elementals? Holy shit, you got it in two. That's right. Hell yeah. Yeah, it is conjure minor elementals. And very similar is Mycerna. Is that conjure woodland beings? That is right. Let's say, uh, Neshanoob. 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 It's got that sh, sh sound in it. Is it uh, Death Ward? No, I already told you Death Ward was Mar Morga. That's but right. But this Morga. is one that you've guessed a few times already. Oh, geez. Is this one polymorph? It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've got like, like I can see there's a, a standard set here that is only set like on this level, I think. Because stone shape and stone skin are close to each other. Um, but like that doesn't help you. So it's Maxeni is stone shape and Makiki is stone skin. Um. Are there any that you're wondering about? How about... Well, what's Faithful Hound? Faithful Hound is Fashkai. Fashkai. And Mordenkainen's private sanctum is Pralkai. Ah. So that, that Kai is Mordenkainen. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, what about, let's just have one more, um, what about Ice Storm? You know, we've done some fire ones, what about Ice? Ice Storm is Waijaroon. 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 Nice. What's, actually, uh, related to that, what's Control Water? Uh, Control Water is... Poela, it's P-O-E-A-L-A, Poelala, Poela. Poela. Hmm. So no, no common, no common syllable for ice and water. No, but I'm wondering if there were previous ice spells that maybe have some connection. I'm also looking at like locate creature versus locate. Plant animals or plants. Locate animals or plants was Bisau, and locate creature was Bijarin. Um, and there's locate object like somewhere in here, but it's so hard to look through this whole list of spells on a moment's notice, you know? Right. Just you can never find the thing you're looking for. Makes makes the game hard, I think. <laughs> but man, I did great that time. Yeah, you did pretty good this time, absolutely.
Um, yeah. Elijah Rune. Uh, Everett's Black Tentacles is Virazex. Nice. Big spooky word for some Cthulian tentacles. Anyway, I'll give you the list for this to put up on the show notes when the time comes. Meanwhile, if you want to check out our show notes, check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. You can see a map of Drail, the setting that most of my games take place in. You can see all the links to the dumb things we've been talking about this whole episode and the smart things and the little doodles I did. I got a doodle that's actually should have been in the last episode that's just of some of these winter birds that the cult likes to use, like the frost owl and the white wing. But I've also got all sorts of things. I got a great drawing of a bat cob, if I do say so myself. And uh, if you just want to follow us and see when we got new episodes up uh, where I post them, that's at uh, Facebook, Comparing Campaign. Just follow us on Facebook. Check it out. Uh, Anything else you want to say, McGill? Level up those characters. Get your ding. Watch out for Jason. And I mean, uh, not me. I mean, maybe I should, uh, but don't watch out for me, I guess. Take care, everybody.